0: to another episode of the Flip Chronicles with yours truly, Rex Navarrete. We open up with a track called Blew It Up. This is an amazing scratch track by the incredible DJ Cutting Candy, who is on my episode today. We're going to have a great discussion with her. She is an amazing... Hip-hop pioneer in her own right, that's right, yes, East Coast hip-hop, that's where it all began. She's a Queens girl from New York City, and she was right in the middle of it all as it started to come up. Oh yeah, so we're gonna have a great, fun, family kind of discussion, and uh, we're gonna get a little political too, so you know what, be prepared, uh, because uh, she's one of the most conscious people I know in the scene. Uh, I've known her for decades. Actually, we we I, when I when I first came out to New York doing comedy, it was it was it was difficult because you know what? It's New York. It's a very different culture, and here's my dumbass from the West Coast trying to be goofy. Mm-mm, no, it took a while, but New York, I love you guys. You guys have incredible incredible sense of humor. Thanks to me. Just kidding. But DJ Cutting Candy, uh, another Queens girl, growing up in a traditional Filipino household. Hmm, should she uh, go into nursing like her parents? Wanted her to or chase her dreams of becoming uh, one of the foremost uh, turntableist scratch artists in hip hop. Um, so we're going to get her story. So hope it inspires you guys as much as uh, it inspired me back in the day. DJ Cutting Candy is also one of our foremost activists within the Filipino, Filipino American um, uh, community. Uh, so she's going to break that down for you. So uh, it's going to get political. I know. It's, it's uncomfortable for a lot of you guys But you know what This is what the podcast is all about right? We're just going to open it up To, uh, to uh, that And uh, we'll see how things go But it, it turned out really well I'm very proud of this episode I also want to thank uh, the folks over at Instagram For making this podcast possible With a grant uh, those guys at Instagram are uh, amazing in allowing you to remit money back to the Philippines to your loved ones, to your friends, to whoever you owe money to. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they've got great uh, exchange rates. Uh, they've also got zero fees. And I believe that if you hit the link on my podcast description, you're also going to get a 15 bucks off on your first transaction. So thanks to Instagram. And I will uh, just take you guys straight into the interview with DJ Cuttin' Candy as we talk about hip-hop, politics, and just the state of being in Filipino America. This is affecting, um, I guess, Filipino families in just a more specific kind of way because we are social. We need to see family. We need to be together. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it's been, it's been, r- it's been rough, especially for like family that I've left behind in, in San Francisco and the Bay area. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they can see each other, but you know, the only way they could see me is through zoom and mm-hmm. I can't make a trip up down there and they can't make a trip up here, you know, and, unless it's in very small batches and everyone's been cleared for like a couple weeks, but it's rough. This is rough. Um, but, and also a lot of Filipino frontline um health workers too
1: right right it's like our families are out there they're being mostly impacted because they are the nurses they are the people in the the care working world and they're care workers at home you know um and i can't even imagine what it's like to be a health care worker well i almost could because originally i was going to school to be a nurse many many years ago, before I decided to say, "Hey, I'm going to be a DJ." Oh
0: my God, you you must you, you're such a rebel.
1: I know. I'm how could you? Rebel.
0: How could you disappoint all of us like that?
1: But, but you know what? Actually, maybe not, because there's so many Filipino DJs.
0: Oh, that's right, because you did it first. You were one of the first to do it, especially as a Filipina to do it like because i remember back in the day we're talking like the early 90s right am i right yeah where yeah you popped up onto the scene and then well here it is 2020 and it's like really i i can't really see you as a nurse (laughs) (laughs) no no but you know we're going to be talking about other stuff that you are up to lately Mm -hmm. but you know what so we do have enough nurses and uh, i don't think we have quite enough djs
1: Right, because back then, I mean, in terms of Filipinas, you know, there was DJ Symphony and when I when I first heard her, I was like, What? You know, that inspires me even more. Right. You know, she was part of the beach junkie, she was West Coast too. Yeah. And um but you definitely in the East Coast I was looking for other Panai's, like where are the other Panai DJs? And there weren't. There you know?
0: yeah, there was one in the mirror in your bedroom, right? <laughs> it's like i'm gonna call myself cutting candy (laughs) like not just candace (laughs) (laughs) right because you were it on the east coast representing queens new york Mm -hmm. city right Mm -hmm. you know that's where spider-man grew up right that's,
1: oh, yeah. Spider-Man. Yeah, for yeah. real. Mm-hmm. Actually, where he grew up, that was literally where I was first um, born. Right. In that area. And then we moved to Flushing when I was about four, I okay. think. Yeah. Which, so, is, which but, is
0: a prim- predominantly uh, Chinese American uh, hub, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Were you like one of the only Filipino families in Flushing?
1: Yeah, there was myself and then maybe one other family we met in um, the Flushing neighborhood. But where we lived, we lived in um, and, uh which is near, not too far, everything intersects, but Chinatown itself in, in Queens was a little bit away. You had to take the Q65 to head down to the, the prime area of the Chinatown of Flushing. And we were on the other end by Pomonok which was a pro- predominantly very black community, but also like other immigrants lived there too. So then you also had like a very Hasidic Jewish community as well. So like we were really integrated in a very diverse community in Pomonok
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it,
1: but we were definitely near Chinatown, but we would still have to take the Q for the Q sixty five bus. I remember all the buses all my life, but, but yeah, I, we were myself. And one other family were Filipinos in the the neighborhood, we were in.
0: Wow. So really Mm -hmm. how many Filipino families were growing up around you?
1: Hardly. I mean, in, in, in where we were in the community we lived in, like it was myself, my sister, as you know, young people in the neighborhood. And then there was Joanna Barraza and her sisters, Jeanette, and she all oh, they were all J's. And uh, they were-
0: Joanna Barraza, how did she get into the story here?
1: Oh, because <laughs> she's, a, she's a major influence in my life when we were younger, because she was the other Filipina in, in the school, my whole school, other than me and my sister. Did you guys go her... to
0: a public school or private school? Yeah,
1: we went to public school. Okay. We went to PS 154, public school 154. We were all numbers back then.
0: (laughs) It's like no names, not named after a president or like a a civil rights leader. Nothing. It was just like 154.
1: Right. Everything was 154. (laughs) And then my junior high was 168.
0: Wow. And then when you go to college, it's like in the 200s now, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There were some schools with the names, but the ones with the names in – well, high school was different. High school we definitely had names, but the middle schools and the elementary were all numbers. It was so odd. Um, but we we were all in the same neighborhood. Actually, you know what? The movie, have you remember the movie Coming to America, Eddie Murphy? Yeah. That was my neighborhood.
0: No way. Yeah. Wait, they didn't actually film in that neighborhood while you were living there, were you? They
1: filmed that film when I was living in the neighborhood. <laughs> and and the movie the the mcdowell's was not really mcdonald's it was actually wendy's wow yeah because when i looked at it uh, i was like that's not when that's not mcdonald's that's wendy's i mean they did name it mcdowell's anyway but
0: oh please don't, please don't tell me that 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 movie was not a documentary okay I... <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> because to me it's real it's like a real story you know this is like uh, uh the original black panther right you know? <laughs> mm.
1: Yeah. I mean, there were so many things about that film, um, that showed our community, but also kind of like it didn't show the other great things about our community either, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, about Pomonok and Q gardens and the neighborhoods that we lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some parts were kind of exaggerated, but some parts were also just very true. Like growing up in the eighties, um, I remember just how we had to be careful in our park, neighborhood parks because there were so many um, broken um, heroin needles, those kind of things. Um, the things that were happening in our community that was such a big message back in the early '80s, like don't be careful, clean up the parks, kind of messaging that was in the '80s. I remember. Right. There was so much messages in the, the '80s back then.
0: <laughs> but the, when the I mean, it was it was a diverse neighborhood pretty much that you grew up in. It wasn't just Filipinos. It wasn't just African-Americans or Latinos. What else was going on? What other communities were um, around you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, we had a lot of um, Indian community that we grew up in. I mean, different parts of Queens are really diverse. I remember they're usually called, Queens is called like the cross cross Boulevard of the world. Really? Of some sort. Yeah, it's known as very diverse Queens in general. So even my high school where I went, which is not too far because my high school is in Jamaica, Queens. So my high school was predominantly with um, Caribbean, West Caribbean, Guyanese communities, Trinidadian community. Um, So I was really around a lot of um, West Caribbean communities where I grew up and a lot of uh, Indians as well. But it was a predominantly Black community in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So where I went to high school was completely different than it was in middle school and elementary because it was a lot more diverse in terms of different ethnicities because you did have you did have some Asian kids, of course, because Flushing's not too far. I mean, we are in Flushing, but Chinatown Flushing was not too far. But we also still had um, different for uh, community diverse communities in my elementary whereas when i got to um high school it was predominantly black south asians um guyanese west caribbean there were puerto ricans in my school as well um so i grew up in a pretty diverse community all around whichever high school i had whichever school i was in
0: mm-hmm. it didn't sound like there was a lot of white folks was no, a lot of no. brown a lot of brown going around huh
1: yeah, not at all. I mean, there were a few whites here and there, but not not major. Mm-hmm. No, no major majority of white po- folks growing up with.
0: So that 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 background kind of got you prepared for uh, the career you chose to do, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you're in you're in you actually there in New York City when hip hop started.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And mm-hmm. and um, I mean, how did that how did that seep its way into your neighborhood?
1: Hmm, yeah, I grew up in a time where, I mean, hip hop in the 80s um, was very presenting and presentable. It was everywhere, you know, like you couldn't be a New Yorker, you could have been into other genres of music, but you would still know hip hop, you know what I mean? That's how New York City was like, like, you could be into like punk and, and still be in hip hop. I mean, actually, the punk and hip hop community... Um, from what I know from a lot of the pioneers of hip-hop always shared how a lot of p- people were into punk but we're also we're really also into hip-hop so a lot of the origins of hip-hop talked a lot about that I believe pop master fable who is a pioneer of hip-hop and part of the rock study crew often talks about the um both of these music and people in those genres of music who and the culture of both communities really merged um and I believe there's a documentary out on that. Just totally slipping my mind the the, the name of it. Mm-hmm. But for me, uh, growing up in New York City, you just could not know or be around, not surrounded by hip hop. And as it really emerged into a more mainstream days in the '80s, um, and and it was it was just at that point because you had Run DMC out, you know, you had, um, and then and then it started becoming really popularized where it came into our fashion, right? So like, I remember when LA Gear had uh, their light, light lighted shoes that was like, became a thing too, if you were into hip hop. And uh, uh, besides Adidas and Pumas, right? Like stemming from um, when it was in its earlier years of hip hop in the the 70s. But when you got to the 80s, uh, the early 80s, all all these other um, interests of fashion of hip hop were coming out. And then you had music that um, were starting to come into a different point of its, its years. Cause then you had, as you got into the nineties, then you had a different era. You had Queen Latifah, you had Keras One. So all of this were entry points into my life of understanding hip hop in, in different um, points and junctures of hip hop culture. But ultimately, you know, my love for hip hop stemming from the way just in general, how I grew into music period. You know, my my father was a, and like a serious collector of vinyl. Mm-hmm. And he played music my whole life growing up. So because of that, that early influence of just loving music, uh, my father was very excited when hip hop was was emerging. And he was excited that, hey, here's a way for me, although he never articulated that, but I felt that because my father was always proud that my sister and I had the same passion for music as he did. Wow, dad, that's we
0: knew. yeah, that that's 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 the first I'm ever hearing that that uh maybe a, uh an immigrant uh Filipino parent would dig the music we're listening to, you know.
1: Yeah, I know me I'm always blown away by it too. I mean <laughs> that, father, your dad's pretty hip. Yeah, my dad always was. That's he cool. was so proud of us to know all kinds of music because he was into it all. I mean he loved everything from jazz to blues, to the funk, to the Beatles, to like he introduced everything from like a Chuck Berry to like a more mainstream popularized Elvis Presley, of course, mm-hmm. you know. But he also loved the Beatles, but he also loved like the Smiths, you know. No
0: like, was, way, way back it up, yeah. really.
1: Yeah.
0: I can <laughs> yeah. imagine your dad just like Ip, just singing Morrissey, just digging yeah. Morrissey, like he it. Was- like, if a 10-ton truck killed the both of us to die by your side, it's such a heavenly way to die. Really? Tito would do that?
1: Right. He was. Dang. He was into it all. The kiss, <laughs> He was into, like, anything that came out of music, he bought the album, and he would play it, I remember our weekends waking up in the morning. It would go from anywhere from like a Frank Sinatra to all of a sudden we're listening to the Carpenters, mm-hmm. and next thing you know we're listening to something more uh, bluesy, right? We're listening to Jimmy Smith, you know, like so we're listening to a huge range of music, and even classic music like classical music. <clears throat> you know, he taught me about Beethoven and all, I mean, like everything he was into, I learned. And so when hip hop was emerging, and I think it has to do with, of course, like say the Jackson five, because my father loved Motown and he loved the Jackson five. And when Michael Jackson came into his prominence, I mean, he influenced, of course, he was influenced by the early breakers back in the days to be able to know how to do the moonwalk. So Michael Jackson, his whole, how he even got into the moonwalk was because of the, the the breakers and the poppers and lockers he had met, you know? And so with that influence, he, 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 although he's labeled as a pop artist, his influence was coming from hip hop culture, you know? And so my father just loved Michael Jackson so much. And so he was so excited that we were into music. My father was the first to like get us anything that had any kind of hip hop.
0: Tito was seriously into Michael Jackson.
1: Yeah, my, my father was really into Michael Jackson um, because he loved the, the Jackson 5. Um, he loved Diana Ross. And then when, you know, Jackson, when Michael Jackson became his own artist and, um, and was influenced in his own day of hip hop culture and even though he's labeled as pop culture there's no denying for those who really know the history of Michael Jackson and how he learned how to do um the moonwalk even and just his early influence of hip hop culture my father just loved you know the fact that you know this was a culture that was music and something that we couldn't connect with another genre of music to connect with, with us as kids. So, you know, he was super excited with us to listen to Michael Jackson. I remember my dad actually met Michael Jackson. Oh my God. Uh, <clears throat> oh, tell my us, father, yes,
0: that's really, he got to meet yeah. a, a younger hero to him.
1: Well, my father was a, a catering waiter and he was at a kitchen and he and it was during the time with the NAACP awards, I believe it was. About it was what year was it.
0: that?
1: It was the year the Bad album came out and um, it was still in promotions and Michael Jackson entered through the back kitchen area, well, near the back kitchen area. And he, Michael Jackson waved to my dad you know, like when my father told me the <laughs> story, I was like, what? And all the bodyguards coming in um through the entrance and um my father meeting um some of his staff, and his staff gave him a whole box full of bad um mm-hmm. tape, and it literally says for promotion material on it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it had and then we got the tour jackets. Mm-hmm. Um the Michael Jackson, it's not the heavy tour jackets. It was one of those more flimsier. ones it yeah, yeah. is promotional. Like, and it literally yeah, like a windbreaker was, kind of thing. Yeah, windbreaker. It was totally windbreaker. And my father got that from me and my sister, because wow. the his staff gave it to us and the posters, all of it. And I was my father was so proud to give that to us. You know, um, and you know, while Michael Jackson is labeled as a pop artist, again, it really had much to do with his influence by hip hop culture and how he was able to bring that to the mainstream world. And my father just really cared about it. Like whenever in New York City, we were walking around and he'd see breakers on the street, he'd be the first to swing us over his shoulders to like watch, you know? Um, So my influence is definitely because of my father's love for music And then of course, as I grew older, listened to more and more music myself, more and more hip hop um, influences by friends who introduced me to Boogie Down Productions and and listening to um, a live taping recording of uh, Boogie Down Productions when they had their show in France. And my first listening to Bo 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 and other music by Kara Swan I was like, oh my God, this is different, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that became, and also clear to me how hip hop has a message. And um, and then that became another level of entry point in hip hop to me. And then meeting DJs at a, a young high school life and I was so wanting to become a DJ um, and meeting other DJs. And I would make the, I was one of those people Cause I wasn't a DJ yet, but I would do pause tapes. You remember how you make pause tapes and putting musics together. And because we didn't, we would do pause tapes, like stop and record, stop and record and all of that stuff. Off I would your make boom them, box,
0: off the radio. Yeah. yeah, okay. All the time. Or tape to tape. Them, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I
1: would do that. <laughs> I would do that making those kind of things for people and for myself. Um, and then, you know, over time meeting other DJs, getting into hip hop, then meeting eventually a lot of the pioneers of, of hip hop and then um, teaching me, mentoring me, whether they realized it or not, um, they became my mentors and um, brought me into really understanding more than just the listening of hip hop, but the origins of it um, and how it emerged. Um, and every pioneer has um, their own story uh, and perspective of hip hop culture. And it shows you how multi-layered the history of hip hop is, and how diverse the history of hip hop is, um, depending from where you're from and where you're at. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has like a whole, whole history, and I've learned so much from so many people about hip hop culture.
0: And uh, you've been the, one of the only Filipinos out there on the East Coast when hip hop was emerging. I mean, uh, how did how did Filipino culture or the you know? filipino americans fit into that scene as it was developing
1: i think for a lot of um the filipino djs i've met over the time who came long before me there were a lot of djs in new york city um who just loved music too you know they had families i mean it good speaks to the whole thing about filipinos loving karaoke you know mm-hmm. and um i think that became another outlet of other than just karaoke, right? With our families. Cause my dad was so into that as well. But like, I think having um, this influence of music in their lives and them them transitioning to becoming DJs as well. And so there's a whole history, you know how like people were documenting the Bay area with Filipino DJs. There's a whole history of New York city as well. Some of it not necessarily always tied to hip hop. Um, There were stories of the origins of Filipino DJs um, back in the 70s from what I've heard from other Filipino DJs long before me. But then around the 80s and late 90s, um, early 90s, there were a whole scene of Filipino DJs that were playing hip hop music in the, in the 90s um, and a whole scene. But in terms of really embracing and understanding hip hop culture, I would say my my DJ crew, the 5th Platoon were definitely uh, the, one of the first in New York City to really um, lift up Filipino DJs um, in New York City at the time. And uh, we were, you know, bringing in um, an understanding that, hey, we were elevating, hey, here we are as Filipino hip hop DJs too, um, in the East Coast. And so, you know, people like DJ Roly Rowe, who at the time was my partner, and he was also my crew partner, um, he was competing back then in the '90s and entering all the major competitions as well as local competitions. And he brought, you know, the figure. And while he's no, he's no Cubert per se, he's his own DJ. But he was definitely a major staple in New York City to a lot of Filipino DJs. I mean, everyone in New York City cannot deny in the Filipino community how much of an influence. Uh, has in their life um, and brought in, um, you know, introducing like, hey, to our own Filipino communities, this is hip hop culture, this is part of hip hop culture, DJing and here's, we compete too. And they were introducing this to the whole Filipino community, a whole scene of hip hop culture and then vice versa, like the way he um, brought, you know, are the game to, to hip hop and influenced um, a whole community of diverse peoples in hip hop. Like he was introducing it all um, and he was competing and bringing name and, and then fifth platoon because of him, you know, fifth platoon elevated into the, the whole turntables community and the whole DJ community and in competition. And he had played a major role in my life into being a competitor. Cause I was like, I want to compete too, you know, cause back then when we were mobile DJing together, you know I, I spent a lot of time doing mobile djing and also being like the host at weddings <laughs> you know i was one of the people that would always introduce people at the weddings and sweet 16s you know uh the debutantes you know um but when we got into really we were always djing at clubs and parties but when we got into competing it was a whole different
0: yeah whole different no you ha- you had to have a side gig to pay for all that equipment Mm-hmm. It was so not easy because I remember a lot of the, the local DJs growing up. Yeah, they had to pool their money together, have like two or three side jobs just to make, you know, their DJ dream come true, you know, so they could battle each other and make a name for themselves. That was it, like the the only way. That was the only way. And that's good to hear that that was happening out on the East Coast as well. That's sweet.
1: Yeah. I mean, we that's how we made our living, you know, I mean and back then i mean you're talking about i remember like a lot of us who were dj's coming from also working class families you know there was a dj crew in queens who you know they had a huge family and they that was their way of contributing income to their family mm-hmm. you know and so these were the ways that um young people were able to to contribute to their families. Wow, for sure.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. So then, you decided to go into competition. How did that mm-hmm. all? How did all that change for for your for yourselves for you in particular? Oh,
1: um, it changed. I mean, I to be honest, when I first started, I was just so excited because I felt like, wow, this is something different, and I want to learn, and I want to, you know. Um, you know, make music too. Cause I was never like, I would get into different instruments and I'd learn other things, but I didn't realize that when you became a turntablist, you weren't just playing records. Although that interested me too, because when I first learned, started learning how to DJ, it was fun. It felt, like, it felt like the DJ was its own, like, you know, they had a way of, you know, really leading the crowd. And I really loved that you could be behind the scenes but yet still be so involved in how people feel and make them feel at a party. And then when you competed, I was like, wow, this is so different because now you could turn the turntables into an instrument, you know? And, um, I was like wow this uh, this outbeats to me a piano right now <laughs> and i never pursued piano further than i had learned oh my god something. wait first
0: of all you gave up nursing and no piano lessons you're, you're <laughs> like a, every filipino parent's nightmare <laughs> no, i
1: know like, <laughs>
0: you're such a rebel i love it <laughs> no,
1: well i remember my mom bought me an organ of all things um i don't know why an organ um and I played it but not really and then i started sticking coins it was one of those um i don't know if it was an electric organ but i started putting coins in it and i don't know if it broke it or not but i just you I broke it, it.
0: no me. you were sabotaging your mom's dreams of you being a pianist
1: well she tried to get me into ballet classes oh, i remember
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i took them and i used to fake an injury every week so i <laughs> so i didn't have to go take ballet <laughs> <laughs> My
0: god oh my god you, you're her. just sabotaging your mom's dreams every step of the way that's hilarious i know
1: because there was a time when she put me in a day camp and i hated it i hated it so much and i would always stay in the corner somewhere and not not social
0: because, because none of our parents could pick up the signs back in the day you know when you, you knew your kid was going to be an artist activist totally outside of the box you know Mm. they didn't know how to pick it up but i think your dad kind of knew you know with with both you both of you and you and your and your sister really digging the the music collection because that's some that's 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 teaching teaching kids about the universe through music yeah you know so i think he kind of knew right
1: yeah. And that was the only thing that stuck. You know, I think, well, you know, my dad died when I was um, 19. He had cancer, mm-hmm. his second cancer, actually. And so um, when he died and I started competing, my mom realized, I think, and what she just wanted to be supportive. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she really knew how, but she figured it out. Because by the time I 18th, I think it was my 19th birthday came and I was saving up for turntables and my friend loaned me his turntable and uh, and I only had one turntable to learn from. I was like, how am I going to learn like this? But that's what I did. Yeah. And then, um, how
0: do you juggle I- with one turntable? Do you- <laughs> I, I don't know,
1: because before that, I would just, before I graduated high school, I would always go to my friends' yeah. houses to learn how to DJ, but I was trying to save up for my own way, and by the time I was 18, um, I only had one turntable to learn from, and then my dad died at 19, and, um, you know, because friends would loan me their turntables, I would borrow for a week in my house, by the time my dad died, um, I was looking for my dad's, because I remember before he got sick, or before he died, I remember he was looking when he got home from on one of his treatments before he was permanently hospitalized before his last few months, he was looking for this wooden mixer, he called it. And he was looking everywhere for it and I didn't know what he was talking about. And I remember he was so sick cause he was just coming back from chemo and he was trying to look for it and I didn't know why. Um, and then I ended up after my dad died finding the mixer. Wow you know in an, like you know in new york city you have attics yeah and in the attic there was like side closet doors and i i discovered it in a box stacked away inside the attic and i felt like that was a sign
0: yeah
1: i was like a, i was like i am meant to be a dj because yeah. i found this you mixer. found the
0: mixer wow and it
1: was an old 1970s mixer yeah, like a late 70s but it's a
0: mixer nonetheless
1: I know, and I said what? And I, I had nothing to hook up with that one turntable I had, so I hooked it up together, and I literally learned how to scratch on that mixer and the fader. I mean, talk about a fader, because when I, I, I know the difference because I would practice, you know, scratching in other people's um, mixers and turntables when they loan me theirs or when I go to their houses. And this mixer, <laughs> it was tough to even budget to the right <laughs> side of the fader. I was like, what is wrong with this thing? It's so stuck. And um, but then I learned how to literally scratch the flare, which was popularized by DJ Kubert and the double-click flare on that that fader. And um that flare, you know, on that fader, I was like, wow, this is so you know, one, no one in the East Coast, there was about only three other DJs that were able to scratch the flare back then in the East Coast. Cause you have to remember there was no YouTubes back then to watch things on. I learned by listening to Kubrick's tapes over and over, rewind, rewind, how does he do this, um, what he called the orbit back then? And I'd be like, how the heck did he do it? And I noticed he had a, a, I knew that it was a double click. That's as far as I knew, but I didn't know like how to put it together and I would notice a drag. And I said, oh, and I figured it out and I was on the phone with my friend, DJ Fat Fingers. And I said, oh shit, I'm doing the flare. And it was funny because in the East Coast back then, um, there were literally only a few that you can name on your hands um, who could do the flare back then in the East Coast, you know? So I learned how to do it on my dad's mixer. And so eventually my mother, ended up buying me my second turntable wow um for my birthday that same year wow so
0: she finally gave in
1: yeah she saved up for it and bought me a turntable because she knew i want i loved it and i wanted to get into it and she'd see me practice on one turntable all the time you know Mm -hmm. um and that's how i knew that Even though she didn't understand it at the time, she wanted to support me, especially my dad had died. And then I remember my first competition, um, and I was flying out um, to Texas for one of them. And she said, you you know, if your dad was alive, he would have wanted to go with you.
0: Hmm. And
1: I said, I know, I know.
0: Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, wow. He He left a great legacy of music. And your mom came through. And you became the DJ that we know, Cutting Candy, because of that. (laughs) That's amazing. That's an amazing story.
1: Yeah, thank you. Wow. I mean, I haven't talked about it in a long time either because, you know, I mean, those times are so, it feels so long ago. I mean, it is long ago. It's many, many, many years now. Yeah, but it's our
0: story now. You know, Mm -hmm. it's our story Mm -hmm. now. That's, that's cool. That is so cool because yeah, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, this next, this new generation, seems like they they are so influenced by, you know, that time, the eighties, the nineties. But they, they, they wish they had something as, as pioneering as, as you did back then. But now we definitely get to have it now through your stories. It wasn't easy, you know? No, Back in no, the day when you anything. had to invent something that didn't exist yet. And you were a part of that. Wow. So that brings you um, uh, later into the later years. You started working with uh, more notable hip hop artists as their DJ. Could you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. Um, I went on tour a lot with a lot of um, artists, you know, over the years, you know, and done a lot of show lineups with a lot of folks, you know, that we know today, like The Roots and, you know, being openers for someone like Jay-Z way back in the day when the fifth platoon, I remember one of our shows, it was in an award show too, it was one of the online hip hop awards when online hip hop, when um, it was called SoHH.com back then. I remember that one. I remember, um, you know, we were opening up for a couple of artists back then. And then I remember the year, me and my crew opened up for MC light, you know, and that was really powerful. Um, We've done a couple of things with so many artists over the years, I can't even name them all, but even the ones that people wouldn't even think like, I remember Bob James, um, jazz musician, one of the most sampled artists, uh, aside from James Brown, but also an artist, um, musician, and he had asked um, myself and Rolly to contribute to his album, you know, and that was such an honor to have someone like Bob James ask us to contribute. I've done things with that kind of prominence. I've even done stuff for like, you know, the New York, um, you know, for, Oh, well, no, I'm forgetting Carnegie Hall, things like that. And then even working with a symphony at one point and having a, a conductor.
0: Wow, really, truly wow. crossing over into other genres like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it was how it was. I mean, I don't think people until they start um, really stepping to these kind of arenas that you see how connected music is overall and how artists cross genres. When I went on the Vans Work Tour, um, in the 90s, I think it was the late 90s, or early 2000s. It must've been the early 2000s and being part of the Vans Warped Tour, you would meet a lot of the musicians and the rock bands and the punk bands. And a lot of them worked with a lot of hip hop artists uh, as well. So it's just really crossed over. Uh, there's always a crossover when it comes to music because you know, a, a musician, for me as a DJ, to me, especially one who's done sweet 16s, wed- uh, mobile DJing a lot, you'd have to be a well diverse dj and not just play you could have your favorites you know hip hop will always be who i am and what i do but a real dj plays all the music and you have to know your music and so it made sense that other artists are into other music too and that there's these crossovers people who did sound tech you know, or any of the audio tech, you know, a sound engineers, they've worked with wide variety of different artists who are in different fields of music. So there's always this crossover between artists and um, in different genres of music all the time. So I've had um, different things I've been involved in when when we did, um, I remember the year, I did something with a John Cage piece um, and John Cage had 42, you know, did notation back then with putting different music vinyls together, different pieces of music. And it was like 42 42, um, music, like records or songs together. And so that's what was, we recreated John Cage's piece through symphony. And that's what we did. And we were like a bunch of DJs together, um, recreating John Cage's um, music notation with those 42 songs in different genres of music. We did jazz, electronic, and hip hop. And so we recreated the whole John Cage piece that way. So, you know, there's so many things um, that you can, you know, experiment with, uh, with music. Mm -hmm. And I've done, I've done those kind of things to like DJing for the WNBA or um, DJing for like, you know, different music. Overall, So it's just so beautiful that you can contribute music in so many ways.
0: We're going to take a little break here. I know you guys are enjoying this episode as much as I am. She is such an empowering Pinay artist, activist in every right. DJ Cutting Candy is amazing. But we're going to come right back to our, little, our discussion here on this episode. In the meantime, if you guys are interested in supporting this podcast, go ahead and check out Instagram. they have uh blessed this podcast with a, a grant so that i can uh get this going and uh share it with you guys out there in the universe Instagram. uh they are a money remittance uh, company that uh you can send money to the philippines to your friends to your loved ones They've got great exchange rates they have zero fees and if you take part in this offer don't forget to hit the link and or click and paste uh, cut and paste the link in my podcast description that way you can take advantage of the 15 bucks off on your first transaction with Instagram and also if you want to also support my comedy go ahead and go to iTunes or any other platform that sells music and downloads you can get all four of my comedy CDs. That's right. All four comedy CDs. The classics like Medley Brown, Husky Boy, Bastos, and Live at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco. That's right. Yours truly, Rex Navarrete, all of my comedy right there. You can download one track or whole entire albums. That would be great, but thank you for supporting me in advance. In the meantime, let's get back to this amazing interview, chat, talk, discussion with DJ Cutting Candy. Since since those days, uh, from the East Coast, you pioneering in the DJ scene in the hip hop scene as one of the one of the very few Filipino faces in in the scene. Where have things gone in this new century? Mm.
1: I mean, you know, I always say the youth will lead. You know, hip hop has been um, central. To being central to young people, I mean, it emerged through Black and Brown youth, you know, the you know coming from the legacy and the lineage of Black culture and Black history and struggle of jazz, you know, funk, the blues, you know, um, Jamaican roots, you know, Caribbean music. It has the history and legacy coming from there, and so when you see where hip hop is today. You see that um, again, even though it, it may not be the hip hop we are used to in our generation in the '90s <laughs> coming yeah, up. Yeah,
0: definitely, uh, where there was a lot more consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. I think a, a lot of us are were, are uh, getting into the politics that we now have. Um, but I'm not I'm not sensing that it is uh, that tradition is still going on for today, or maybe I'm missing it totally.
1: Hmm. well there's different ways it comes out you know what i mean yeah. like i think there is a consciousness there i think it's also like underground hip-hop I and mean, even though i don't necessarily like to divide hip-hop like that mm-hmm. even in the i would say the early 2000s late 90s when you had someone like immortal technique and then you had artists like dead present in, in the late 90s um early 2000s who who were conscious artists but may not have had mainstream status but then you also had someone like you know the black star you know who mm-hmm. were bringing in also the consciousness in the in the late 90s mm-hmm. early 2000s as well and then you had the and they were often put into the category of underground hip-hop um but and but in so many ways they weren't just underground to people who consistently listen to them and they still sold large amount of albums and were really popular um but just never got mainstream status because there is politics in radio as well so you know i think as they emerge there's still like there's still folks in hip-hop like that today who still considered underground um and then I think of people like Ruby Bara, who has a consciousness, right? Or someone like Bamboo or or um, Geo, um, also you know geologic, who also brings some consciousness, a, a whole lot of consciousness to their music. Or uh, Nomi from Power Struggle, you know, they're bringing as Filipinos uh, a conscious hip hop. But then in terms of the mainstream music today, I mean, it's very loud and clear where they stand. You have someone like YG that has a song like F the police, you know what I mean? Um, And then you have other music that are out there that is, is still loud and clear. But something about like, to me, even if something doesn't loudly say something really super conscious the music itself speaks for itself. You know, I think about something like Mob Deep, you know, and I grew up in Queens, New York. And so Mob Deep has a a special place in my heart. You know, um, even their opening lines of a song or like some parts of their lines where like no man is safe from like their lines in their song, even though it doesn't, uh, it's not, it's far different from like a, a Nas song or far different from like a dead press song, something about their lyrics speaks to the truth of what's happening in their communities or their experiences. And to me, even though that may not be labeled as conscious, I think there's some kind of consciousness because it's speaking certain truths that they're experiencing in their lives. So even today with certain music, it may not be the same thing. I think there's some level of like, what are they bringing um, that sense uh, to, to um to the community in ways that young people see it that we may not understand how young people view their life what what is the message to me when it comes to any kind of um any kind of communication i'm also listening to what people are not saying mm-hmm. and why aren't they saying it and so i kind of look at subliminal messages you know in some in some some ways what are young people trying to say to us that they're not saying um in their music and, and, or even as they talk to us. So what are young people listening today? And what are ways that we can engage? Um, so we're not judging, but actually learning from what they are trying to say to us, even though it may not be the way we want things to be articulated. Um, as one who likes to work with young people, I try to <clears throat> you know, not judge them from what they're listening to, but kind of really understand more yeah. um, and listen more so I can engage better and see where they're coming
0: from. Yeah. So in going back to uh, our current Filipino, Filipina hip hop artists, um, how is the message changing? Or is there, is there something new uh, from, from their lyrics, from, from their music that, uh, that didn't happen like in the 2000, early 2000s in the nineties?
1: Oh, well, I, I mean, I remember when I first heard of bamboo, um, maybe the, Early 2000s, a little bit after the 2001, I think. And I was told um, about Bamboo, introduced to, to his music because of Isang Mahal from Seattle, the poetry group. Mm-hmm. And they introduced me to Bamboo and they were like, what, you never heard of Bamboo? And I was like, no, put me on. Because I was listening to it when on a, on, a, on a we were on tour together, driving in Florida, I remember. And um, they intro to me... about Bamboo because he was West Coast, you know? And I was always the kind and back in the day, and I'm still like this now, any artist, especially if you're Asian or Filipino, I wanna support you and I wanna put you on or I wanna play your music and I wanna introduce it to other people. And so I remember um, listening to Bamboo when they played it, I was like, oh my God, I gotta support this person, you know? So I remember emailing Bamboo um, months later and i said hey i just want to say i love your music i'm a fan already and he emailed me back and we became friends ever since and he told me when he was coming to new york and we became friends ever since Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and and i i remember my show in jersey i had a show in new jersey and i no one heard of bamboo in the east coast and i wanted to put him on and i only had a 30 minute slot and um I told the promoters, I was like, "Look, I want to put an artist on. Can you put him on?" And they're like, "No, unless you put him in your slot." And I said, "I don't mind doing that because I want people. People need to know who Bamboo is here in Jersey, you know." And I cut my show in half time to give him a slot, um, and had introduced him on stage, um, and he performed, and and. People were not were not ready. You know, it was so different because I remember my first show in the in the West Coast experiencing not my first show, but my first time experiencing how conscious Filipinos were in the West Coast. Not that there wasn't any conscious people in Filipi- in Filipinos in New York City, but it was very different. I was one of the few young people um, who were emerging in consciousness and who were doing things with organizations and in my early stages of learning. And when I went to the West Coast and the Bay Area, and I went to an event, and I saw Filipino fists in the air, I was like, Oh, my God, I need to move to yeah. the Bay area. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, I need to move to the Bay Area. But I felt like I could never move from New York City because I felt it was a responsibility for me to stay in New York um, to bring that to New York city. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I felt like I will move when I know it's ready to move, when there's more organizations, more Filipino organizations in New York. That was my commitment, um, to stay in New York until more people and more young people were organizing. And so long story short, you know, when I say people weren't ready, they just were not, they were not, they didn't know what consciousness meant. They didn't know like someone could be political. And I remember when Bamboo and I, <laughs> when they did the uh, whole American flag pledge of allegiance thing, we did not stand up, mm. you know. And everyone were looking at us like, mm. "Oh shit," <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. you know what I
1: mean? And they, um, and those trouble, point,
0: those troublemakers, <laughs> who invited them, nakok trouble.
1: Oh, we so were, and then you know at that time and that juncture of my life, people were like, you know, Candy's changing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, she's becoming very Black Pantherish, and I was like, and I was reading forums because if you remember back then there were like these forums, and I was like, okay, I said, well, I don't know what to make of this, but I'm honored to be, uh, labeled alongside the Black Panthers, but okay. <laughs>
0: You know, oh, I can never be a black. Awesome. i not black, but yeah, I. Yeah, but we have... can be allies, but still, that's bad <laughs> enough, right? Yeah, right. Oh so, my you God, know. you you could imagine uh being at one of my first comedy sets in New York City, that was mm. rough too. That was rough because mm. I was bringing West Coast goofy consciousness, and all Filipino material. They were not ready as well. It, it took it took few more trips to mm. you know. To bring that, uh, what we were doing on the West Coast to you guys. And, and then we all became, you know, blended uh, eventually. But yeah, it was early. It was early struggle. It was,
1: it was in New York City. But and then, um, so now long, going to present day, you had that back then. And then you have someone like Ruby Ibarra. Right. I mean, when I've heard her album, like I was always a fan of Ruby, by the way, because I paid attention to all her poetry mm-hmm. and her, I watched a bunch of her videos. I knew who she was for a long time, cause that's how I am. Like when I find out you're an artist, I am gonna check you out, I'm gonna support you. That's just how I am. So I already knew who Ruby was and I was a fan back already. So when I, her album dropped, oh my God, I cried. I like cried. Her album was more than just like, okay, let me just talk about consciousness. Like her album was a story, a people's story. And it just, it talked about all the things and every experience. I've ever had or what I felt others I knew went through. Um, And it was so beautiful. It was, was, I feel like that's a classic, a legendary classic album that spoke to my heart. And I messaged her right away. I was like, Ruby, your album was just golden, just golden. And if it could get a Grammy and if I could give it a Grammy, I would give it a Grammy, it deserved that. Mm -hmm. Not to say that other artists didn't have that, but there was something about Ruby that brought just the delivery, that it kept checking off all the, the boxes. Mm-hmm. You know, it had delivery, it had content, it had principles, it had like the flow, her different flows that she had in there. I mean, phenomenal, and the storytelling, beautiful, the writing, the. It was just very well done album, and the way she brought it and she brought different kinds of feels to it. So it had laid back feel. It had a very West Coast feel, but it also had trap music. It was, it spoke to all different ways of, of how music should be, not stuck in these like confined, confined ways. Music is supposed to bend and, 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 um, connect with people and she did she was really really brilliant at the way she wove in different fields of her album um and i was just blown away by it so there's that difference but i would also i'm also really proud to say that a lot of the filipino artists um that i've known from back then to now um always brought a, a level of consciousness and even those the ones who weren't like i remember someone like noah lazarus from who was from East Coast, Filipino artist, one of the first Filipino MCs of New York City that really could also just phenomenal freestyle MC. He wasn't conscious uh, the way a bamboo is um, or, you know, or Kiwi is, but he had delivery. He could freestyle, he could like bring it. I mean, he's one of the illest freestyle MCs I've known um, across, you know, race. You mm-hmm. know, and um, he was just phenomenal artist. And now he lives in the Philippines. You know, um, back and forth from the Philippines to the states. Yeah, though those are crazy
0: then- hip hop scene out in the Philippines. You know, me just going back and forth. Yeah, it is. It is matured. It has mm-hmm. totally matured. And um, man, uh, really, they this is a universal thing. But I think uh, with you, East Coast uh, hip hop uh, Filipino artists and in the West Coast really really kind of laid the foundations for what's going on over there in Manila.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, you had someone like Mike Swift, who's from Brooklyn living out there, yeah. leading the way with the battle scenes. Oh my gosh, Right, You, you also know? got, and you they're... got,
0: Pica- you got Picasso um, from the Bay <laughs> yeah. area. You got, Oh God, who else is out there? Uh, a lot of, a lot of guys are going out there producing music too. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, but just to hear um, conscious Filipino, Philippine rap in Tagalog, I, I thought mm. I thought that would never happen, but you know what I mean, like Francis M. Um, Glock Glock nine, um, but man, just like wow, you know, yeah, it, it's just becoming a, a tighter circle for us.
1: It it totally is, and it's bringing it's it's elevating things, a uh, uh, messaging that's so needed, you know, and to challenge. A lot of the colonial mentality the colonized oh yeah
0: that's our unending mission for a lot of us artists who are who know too much Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know it's like (laughs) it's like stop talking like that you know too much (laughs) you're not supposed to know that stop talking you'll make the trouble (laughs) like really that's what we're designed for tita we have to make trouble right yeah. because you know yeah. what everything's all cool and that's when they come through and they get you that second turntable right mm-hmm. Right, they're just scared just for scared us them. because they love us you know
1: right i mean they are scared for us yeah. i remember when i went to the philippines and i went there for an exposure trip my mom got so mad at me because I, I was asking her like mom i want to go to you know your village where you lived because i hadn't been there since i was four i think or five and my mother didn't want to give me the address
0: hmm. What village is she, this? Where is this? Uh,
1: in Biko, in the Manan. She didn't want to tell me how to get there, where my grandmother's home is still wow. there. You know, my grandmother died, but she didn't want me to. She well, at the time she was still alive when I went in two thousand seven, but my mom did not want me to go mm-hmm. at all. She said, "What are you like? What 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 are you going to be doing there?" And I said, "Because I want to visit where yeah. your house is, your where roots. you grew up. Yeah, your, your roots." roots. But she didn't want me to go because she was worried. Fear. Wow. Fear. Wow. I still went to the Philippines and I still went to three different villages. I stayed in um, three villages in Davao. I stayed in a, a Moro community.
0: And you don't have family um, down there?
1: No, I don't.
0: Dang, girl. Uh, yeah, that's how you see the Philippines. You have to see the Philippines. You know, yeah. you got to go. That's, yeah. that's beautiful. But yeah, I mean, I that would scare any, any of our parents. You went, you went to Mindanao. we have no family there. Yeah, yeah. Because it's part of the Philippines. They're Filipinos down there. And you know, that's, a, that's part of us.
1: <clears throat> well, I stayed in a village where they were sharing their stories with me on, on how people would come in the middle of the night and, and take this, kidnap their husbands, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things. And I, I learned a lot staying in the village that I stayed in, you know, and, uh, I mean, that was the whole purpose. I went there for an exposure trip with the organization I was with, and so, and, and my mother was mad that I went, you know, because it's based off her of fears.
0: Are you going to come back communist? You'll yeah. be, you'll become communist, and.
1: And then my resp- yeah, that was my response. And? I said, I said, so what, mom? I'm in a, a communist.
0: <laughs> Socialist? Oh, oh, that. We, we, yeah, yeah, and. She
1: was like, what? Don't say that! Don't say that! <laughs> Don't say that! <laughs> And then, you know, she said, she goes, what do you, you, what if you die? You're going to die. No one to know you, no one to know who you are and what you did. And I said, oh, my
0: God. <laughs> <laughs> what if you die? Uh, You die. <laughs> you just, you just, hopefully the, someone will take care of your body. <laughs> oh, my God. oh, my God. Yeah. They have the worst fears, everything like that. Just stay where, just stay near Manila. You know, you'll be safe. Or, yeah, right. No, no, you need to venture out because this is this is our birthright, you know. Yeah, a lot of us feel Am's, we need to go back. We need to ex- to see the Philippines before it's all gone, before it changes before our eyes. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I mean, the fear is valid. I mean, looking at my chil- children now. You know, I, I I worry about them all the time. So I can I can understand from a parental point of view, but I want my children to grow. I want them to see things. I want them to know what's going on in the world, mm-hmm. and I can't let that fear of protectiveness just keep them with me. You know, um, as much as I want to. You know, I think there, eventually our children will grow and to make their own decisions, and. You know, I, so I've learned not to tell my mother where I'm going all the
0: time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's a long way of saying I've learned to lie. Just really. Just, uh, where are you going? Um, go, we're going to Hawaii. Oh, okay. That's safe. <laughs> Why do you need your passport for Hawaii? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. But now, I mean, uh, lately, um, uh, there is that, 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 that upswell of consciousness happening in our community now. And, and that, that, that makes me giggle because, you know, like 30 years ago when we were like wondering, is this ever, ever going to take off? Are we ever going to be proud to call ourselves Filipino in America? And the uh, mm. thing is, things have changed. Things have mm. changed. Um, and, you know, I mean, just coming from my field, you know, it's like, wow, am I going to be the only stand-up comic doing this, talking about flip stuff? No, apparently not, and um, you know, and everyone else like you in your genre, um, uh, people in uh, who are writers who are now also academics, you know, it's like wow, Filipino is is now kind of like a an everyday thing, you know, because you can't you can't not bump into a Filipino in this country. We're everywhere hmm you know?
1: I mean it took time it took a lot of educating to get where we are now I mean we still have a long way to go I think overall in America every person has a long way to go to decondition to decolonize um, to better understand um, where how can uh, people really be free you know mm-hmm. especially with an administration that is literally um, trying to kill us um, <laughs> mm-hmm. or or even just the system itself right yeah. so you know it's a it's a long long working and never ending thing until it's all completely gone
0: and how and how, what kind of tools can we suggest for for young filipinos in this country to speak their mind to not be afraid to have uh, an opposing opinion because I'm feeling like a lot of our young folks don't have those tools, and if they do try, I mean, the opposition is 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 really is really well funded and and quite mm. violent, and, and um, so that that can be very discouraging to a lot of young folks who want to come up and be Filipino conscious.
1: Mm. I think that's why I love the arts so much. I mean, it, it it eases you into feeling comfortable of expressing. Um, mm. You know, because you can, it's almost like when you're an artist, you transform yourself in so many different ways, while kind of bringing yourself at the same time. You transform, but you also bring in um, who you are and what you feel and your emotions into that transformation. And it's a beautiful way to express. um, That's why cultural organizing is so important in this time um, to lift up people, but to also amplify um movements and people who've been uh who've been harmed or who've gone through you know oppression but it's also a clear way of you know um using it as a tool um to mobilize folks into the movement and so i think that's a beautiful way of uh, uh, to do it but then um just as bamboo says it, it's more than just doing music you have to actually organize um while that is a tool of organizing, I think there's nothing like importance of really working with organizations because you know it's important to be part of an organization because an organization will teach you and um, they'll hold you accountable or teach you how to be accountable to yourself and to your community and um, you know you share together you build relationships together and and you follow the lead of the people through an organization so when you join an organization that's where you're going to learn um and so i think that's an important tool you know being part of one so if you can't find one that you really connect with then start one and speak to several people before you start one on how um their community organization started and then i would say constant study Mm -hmm. it's so important to study Mm -hmm. i can't even I can't even express how um, it's important to sharpen our analysis and um, sharpen our critical thinking skills because that's what's gonna help us um, inform our decisions and how to inform how we become better people in this world. Um, If you are left unstudied, um, you fall easy to prey to conspiracy theories. You fall prey to like, uh believing people like trump harmful folks um you fall you know ignorant to things and then um you then buy into a lot of these things Mm -hmm. and so it's important when you are conscious of things you're able to be critical and challenge things and find that just when you think you know one thing and you've discovered one layer of an issue you discover because your critical thinking skills has sharpened you know how to continue digging deeper and deeper and deeper into things and challenging so that's the most important tool is to develop those critical thinking skills it just doesn't happen overnight it happens as you continue to study and you don't just study by reading books i think that's definitely some of it but you study by being around other organizers and other organizations and other scholarly thinkers Um, There's ally professors who can really guide you. There's people in community who are organizers that will guide you. And then your peers who are also folks to learn from, who are studying on their own. So I think all of these tools are right before us and sometimes we don't realize it. I mean, it's hard when you're a kid and your school systems doesn't teach you anything and it's not accessible to you. I think that's why it's so important that we're connected with people in the community because that's how we're going to learn. I would have to say that my early entry point of hip hop is what really politicized me. Had it not been for the hip hop music that I listened to, you know, from Public Enemy to you know, Karis One albums, to Queen Latifah, you know what I mean? Like had it not been for that point in my life and then meeting Pioneers,
0: We've got Filipinos who are kind of like a, on every part of the spectrum politically, and but we've mm-hmm. got we've got a lot of we got a lot of stuff to deal with in this country right now this week you know with uh, with all the demonstrations the violence um, and the opposing sides and and I'm am seeing a clear clear division of uh, of our own community I mean just in terms of just like who are you gonna vote for this November and uh we are we are some avid trump supporters and that that was a big surprise to me um uh, but you know what yeah it's it's a big it's a it's a big reality and uh, for those of us who have to have an opposing view it's always it's always going it's always been um a very a very delicate place to be especially with uh, a lot of us being immigrants right mhm
1: yeah, I mean, where we are now, um, I mean, it's it's a lot of, you know, we've come a long way in terms of when we brought up folks like Ruby Ibarra today, right? Mm-hmm. But we're also still not where we could be. And that speaks to how much more work we've got to do in politicizing folks and bringing consciousness to people. And it's going to take a lot of education. Um Yes, one thing to address that we have a, a person in office in the White House who's um, really proceeding with this messaging of fascism or instilling fascism in this country that's always been present. Um, I, don't think, I don't think white supremacy has ever left. It's always been here.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's just very um, emboldened now. And because you have someone who is emboldening uh white nationalists in this country um to enact and um and they're being more loud and clear Um, and they're also showing how connected they are to the systems that are in place Uh, we've always known that for those of us who are organizers and who are conscious but it's becoming more and more present than we've ever realized and um or showing its face (laughs) it's showing its face because you have a person in the White House, who's a fascist, who is problematic. But it also speaks as really a realization that ways in which we're able to have someone even in the White House speaks to the ways in which white supremacy has always been part of that system anyhow. That it allows people of that kind of level um, of person of being to be able to be instilled in the white house. Mm -hmm. It's just a different way. So Mm -hmm. it speaks to how much, and I, and I'm an abolitionist, which is different than. Just having consciousness in a, in a more, um, I guess you can say safer way, but as an abolitionist, as a, as a strong leftist, I would say that we need to do away with the whole system, not to just take down Trump because it's bigger than Trump, because if it's not Trump, it's someone else. That will seep into the White House because it's it what it's showing is that someone can easily step in to the White House to be loudly and proudly connected to white nationalists, not hidden anymore. It's actually they're daring to show their boldness of being connected to white nationalists in this country. And <clears throat> As an abolitionist, I don't believe that it's simply just Trump. Do I think, yes, there's a strategy here. We cannot allow to have someone like Trump in the house. Um, we, we definitely need to take him out of office and we need to work towards abolishing the whole system that's mm-hmm. in place, because it hasn't been working for us um, a long time. And you know, I'm not gonna judge what other people's strategies are and who they're going to vote for, I'm one of those folks that don't shame people for voting for not voting because I understand that voters disenfranchisement is real. Um, I know that voter suppression is real, Um, and I also know how people are lost their faith in a system that allowed Trump to even be in this Mm -hmm. place. You know what I mean? But at the same time, there is some strategies we need to take, and and sometimes it might be. I think everyone has their lane in their work that they've got to do, um, whether that's electoral politics or whether that's working with a strong grassroots organization doing more radical things. At some point, and I think we are at this point where we need to align, and we may not have the same strategy, but at some point we really need to align in our strategy to really push forward to really dismantling a whole system because time and time again, we're always having left to vote for the lesser of two evils all the time. And why are we here again? Mm. I think this this situation we're in is definitely one so dangerous to have someone in the White House who got away with executive order, out of executive order, completely chaos going on complete chaos that I then I've ever seen any president has ever done. Although it is to be fair that there has been presidents in this country, whether you're Dem or Republican, that has been super problematic. And, you know, so there are definitely things beyond that. And I'm a third party typically, but I will vote where I need to vote and strategize when I need to, especially for local politics, you know, um, But I definitely do think that there's some strategy that we need to do. And then on the other note is also to politicize and continue building critical consciousness. You know, in my own organization alone, I've seen an uptick in like a lot of people have joined my organization because I think people know that they have to start doing something that it no longer is acceptable that you're not involved and that you just don't care. I think... I, I also find it hard to believe that people don't care. You know, As an organizer, I like to believe everybody is organizing something, whether they realize it or not, that they're an organizer already. They're organizing something. Mm-hmm. I just think people need more tools in their toolbox to figure out how they can be better contributors to the movement. And so, And let's be real, capitalism has kept people from organizing because they're working, they're surviving capitalism every day. They're struggling, they're trying to give to their community, give to their families, their loved ones, their caretakers, um, and they're trying to take care of themselves in the midst of it. Um, and capitalism has not allowed people to organize sometimes. So I I think it's more about how do we create and foster spaces so that there's could be more people into the movement and build people's consciousness and build, build power and people that already have power but need to incite it and bring them in to be part of it. And I think this moment that we're in has made folks realize that I can't just be in the moment of like, oh my gosh, I need to do something, but oh my gosh, I need to be part of the movement. you know. And I think that's what's bringing folks, more people into the movement now, because I think they're starting to realize that I can't just care about these issues and I can't just simply, you know, um, you know, be in pain for, you know, other people and and hold that, but I also need to be part of something greater than just myself, and, and really, and there's different ways to contribute to, to the movement, um, you know, I think disability justice organizers uh, have shown us the way for a long time, how we can contribute to the movement in various ways, um, and You know i like to lift up what people like adrian marie brown always talks about that small is all small is good and small is all so even if you just join an organization and you may not you may not be at the front lines that's okay too i think just being part of an organization and um sharing knowledge with your family is a big big thing um you know i'm one of those um, uncomfortable people at the dinner table (laughs) That will tell my family. Uh, So you understand that this Thanksgiving thing is super problematic. That's me. Right. Exactly.
0: I know. Right. That's me too. But we still make the turkey. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: You know. God. We're we're ever evolving, ever adapting. So you know what? That's just, uh, hey, it's, this is, this is just where it's at. We just have to activate, you know, rather than spectate. And, um, and for a lot of folks that, that is a difficult choice. It is, but you know what, with hopefully they can fi- follow your example, because really, um, what you've been doing as an artist really bleeds over into your activism in your organizing today. And, uh, I think that just creates a more whole person, especially, uh, we need more whole people these days. Mm-hmm. And now that we're both parents, you, you know, doing your thing and, and, um, yeah. We are laying yet more foundation for uh, for for these uh, for these future you know activists, future artists. Um, right. But it is uh, it's it's just that's just what we're meant to do. I guess we're designed that way. You know, mm-hmm. Filipinos are always political, always political. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not right. just artistic, cultural. We are political. Seriously, it's always it's always been a part of us. Um, you know, resistance is in the DNA. And, um, you know, and uh, hopefully, hopefully something, something better happens for this country very soon. I but, know. But this has been an amazing conversation with you. DJ Cutting Candy, I would, oh, I just, I hope that the people can reach out to you. Is there a way yeah. for people to reach out to you and maybe get more ideas and see how they can get more involved in, uh, you know, in the months to come before the big election does happen or before we get hit by an asteroid?
1: Oh gosh hopefully not oh my god I saw that article <laughs> and then I read it I'm like, okay, it's a smaller thing hopefully but uh, <laughs> I was like oh no nothing else please uh, but uh yeah they could reach me you know on Facebook on my Facebook page or my Instagram at at cut and candy you know so just find me there um and you know just drop me a line or go to my website and you could contact me there at djcutandcandy.com. That's a good way of, of uh, getting directly at me. You know, it has been great talking with you, reminiscing stories I hadn't talked about in so long or, or remembered. And I still remember our first show together back in New York when, Mar- when Margarita brought us together, if you remember. Oh, yes, bamboo- that's right. Bamboo Girl. Show. Yeah, remember yeah, Margarita,
0: what's up, girl? Hope she's listening to this. But yes, those are my early days in New York, and it was a struggle, but it was a beautiful struggle because I needed to, you know, to to connect both coasts, you know, through yeah. through the humor, through the comedy. And I'ma tell you, New York is goofy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> it is I goofy it. as hell out there. <laughs> oh my God, that's so cool, but yeah, you know really we're just kind of all over the place, but you know to 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 let the listeners know that you know one Filipina pinay DJ coming out of Queens, New York City did something that's still doing something great. you know oh. your your story ain't over girl. It's not oh. over.
1: But well, same with you, Rex. I mean, you're you're still doing it. I'm just so excited to be part of this and be in conversation with you and can't wait to stay connected. I'd like to unpack a whole lot with you too mm-hmm. in terms oh, yeah. of comedy. What's oh, yeah. going on with comedy today? <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> it's 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 still on the download. The good stuff is always underground. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah but cool candace thank you so much for being part of the flip chronicles on my uh, my i want to i want to make sure that folks hear your music so they get at you um connect with you but you still have a lot of music that you've archived that we definitely need to to unpack and uh because you were like the original you know one of the originals in the hip-hop scene and i just don't want people to forget that ever
1: mm, well thank you rex it's been an honor
0: Okay, girl, you take care of yourself, and, and, and I kiss your sweet uh, children for me.
1: Okay, same with yours and your family. Take care. Stay safe in this pandemic and all things going on.
0: Oh, well, I will.
1: Okay, bye.
0: And that was the amazing DJ Cutting Candy. That was a great interview. I, I really had a great time with that one. It was short and sweet, but um, I want to thank her again for being on this podcast and for opening up and telling us her story. You are now legend you continue continue to be a legend Candice you know in my book uh, DJ Cutting Candy uh, look her up reach out to her get her stuff she's out there and um, if you're a big fan of hip hop please please do not forget her role in the hip hop that you love today uh, because she was right there in New York City when it was all happening and coming up uh, that uh, is the end of this episode of the <laughs> Flip Chronicles. Almost forgot the name of my podcast. Flip Chronicles, uh, episode four. Again, thanks for tuning in and, and supporting. Please, please share the links to my podcast to everyone out there. Uh, and also let folks know that if they do want to send money to the Philippines, go through Instagram, who's uh, been kind enough with a grant for this podcast. Instagram. And all the information is at my podcast description. You can send money to the Philippines through them. Uh, uh, they're a great company, so please support them. And also, don't forget to support my comedy by going to iTunes and downloading and purchasing my past comedy CDs. Yes, all four of them, the classics. That's right. Artists versus the Super Friends and SBC Packers are all available now as a download on iTunes and other platforms where you can buy and download music. Again, this is Rex Navarrete signing off on episode four of the Flip Chronicles. Thank you so much.